This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Laforothon, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But before we get into any of that stuff, we would like to thank some of our patrons for helping us keep this podcast going. And this week, we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Callum, and Andrew and Helena Webb. Yeah, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate all of your support. And we hope you enjoyed all the extra stuff that we did around Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. If you want to see any of that stuff, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Yep, it's always there. If you join at any time, you get access to all of the previous premium content and patron-only stuff. So there's never a better time to join than right now. (laughs) Jumping into the news... We've got a paper out of PLOS One, which aims to answer the question of what dinosaurs' tongues were like. (laughs) And this is tricky because dinosaur tongues don't fossilize, as far as I know, being that they're soft tissue and all. So what they did is they tried to use hyoid bones to sort of investigate what the tongues might have been like. And I should mention the article was written by Ji Hung Lee and others. And if you're not familiar, the hyoid bone is in humans at the very top of the throat and it kind of anchors our tongue. Apparently it evolved way back when fish first went onto land. So it's kind of one of those bones that basically all vertebrates has, all land vertebrates, at least pretty much all of them. I didn't find any examples that didn't have them. <laughs> and That's because tongues evolved very early for eating and breathing, and it's a very useful organ to have. And if you have a tongue, I guess you need a hyoid bone to kind of hold it in place. So it turns out birds have tons of different tongues. They can be forked, pointy, serrated, barbed, and super long, sometimes combinations of those things. A couple of examples, some woodpeckers have spear-like tongues for stabbing insects. You know, they kind of burrow into a tree using their beak and then they shoot a spear out. Although I saw a picture of a woodpecker shooting a spear in a field, so it must have been going for some kind of insect running in the grass. And their hyoid bone is crazy. It starts by their eyes, then it wraps up and around the back of their head, goes through the neck and out to the end of the beak to stabilize the tongue. And the tongue follows that same crazy path. It's pretty nuts. But I guess when you're shooting a spear type thing out, it needs that slack sort of in the throat or something. Super strange. Geese 
also have crazy tongues. They have serrations that face up along the edges of the tongues, so it almost looks like a bottom row of teeth kind of terrifying up close. And there's also serrations on their upper beak and lower beak, I think, that sort of go along with that. So they have all sorts of serrations, apparently for tearing through vegetation. One of the freakiest looking tongues is on the Fjordland penguin. It's really spiky, and I guess a lot of penguins have these spiky tongues because they're catching slippery fish, but it's like huge teeth looking spikes all over the tongue. And the reason the Fjordland penguin is so creepy is it also has red eyes. At first I thought it was photoshopped, so I had to look at multiple pictures before I believed it actually looked that terrifying. <laughs> and then to end on a less freaky note, hummingbirds have very long and forked tongues, which kind of separate when it gets into the nectar in a plant. And when it they separate really rapidly, it sort of pumps the nectar up into their mouth a little bit. So that's pretty interesting and neat. And I think some hummingbirds have tongues that are almost as long as their body or maybe even longer. So obviously they need pretty intense hyoid bone situations to keep that all under control. <laughs> now, this paper also talked about non-avian dinosaurs, and the study really focused on comparing pterosaurs, crocodilians, dinosaurs, and birds. And what they said was that most archosaurs have very simple hyoids, which is kind of surprising because a lot of other animals have hyoid bones that allow us to use our tongue in all sorts of interesting ways, like the way I'm talking right now. <laughs> but Early birds and late ornithischians appear to be some of the only archosaurs that have larger or complex hyoid bones. And I noticed when they said ornithischians and birds that that would also be described as derived ornithoscolidans if you're subscribing to that new nomenclature. And as a reminder, Ornithoscolida is a proposed new grouping of both Ornithischians, which are essentially non-sauropod herbivores, as well as theropods, which are the three-toed carnivores like T-Rex and a lot of other guys. So if you subscribe to that grouping, then they're the only ones in Archosauria that got this. But it would have been pretty far down the lineage, so I don't think you could argue that it was a shared trait amongst Ornithoscolidans. The research can be summarized very loosely as T-Rex couldn't stick out its tongue, as a lot of <laughs> news media did. But T-Rex wasn't mentioned anywhere in the article. Really what they were saying is that no early dinosaurs and only a few late Jurassic and Cretaceous dinosaurs could do anything exciting with their tongue. They point out that none of the archosaurs that are hypercarnivorous, things like T-Rex, had any special tongue movement. And this is partly based on Euteranus, I think, because they looked at Euteranus in the article, and <laughs> that made me think how we were thinking that because Euteranus had feathers, and we extrapolated that to T-Rex having feathers, and now we're kind of going back on that, makes me wonder if we look closely at T-Rex, maybe it will have some sort of hyoid that allows it to move around. But it seems unlikely given that no other non-avian theropods seem to have it. And I need to mention, when they say that some derived Ornithischians have a fancy hyoid and a little enhanced tongue movement. They're talking about ankylosaurs, apparently, so that's pretty cool. Essentially what they're saying is that hypercarnivores just have wide and large <laughs> muscly tongues, I guess, like crocodilians, modern alligators and crocodiles do, and 
I guess I've never really paid attention, but modern crocodiles and alligators can't move their tongue much. It just kind of sits at the bottom of their mouth and then they have to swallow stuff whole, which could be related to why they don't need a tongue because they're not manipulating anything in their mouth really. They're just swallowing huge chunks whole and what's the point in having a fancy tongue that can do all sorts of different movements if all you're doing is swallowing stuff whole. It basically just needs to stay out of the way. The authors also propose that, quote, the evolution of novel respiratory mechanisms apparently drove a simplification of the tongue, end quote. And I guess they're hypothesizing that the air sac system is related to a simplified tongue. They didn't really bring in a lot of supporting information for that. But they also say that a more capable of tongue might have later been derived because they didn't have, quote unquote, more dexterous forelimbs. So in other words, these birds that now have wings don't have their hands available to help them with feeding, so they needed some fancy tongue action to help them catch prey or otherwise eat food. And I suppose that would apply to ankylosaurs as well because they're quadrupedal, but it doesn't really explain why things like sauropods or other herbivorous dinosaurs wouldn't have a tongue that would be useful. I guess they're just relying on their teeth is the assumption. Like some of the big carnivores were just relying on teeth and therefore they didn't need a tongue. But as these later dinosaurs just had beaks, then a tongue was more useful. And I suppose this also means that the Sinoceratops that was in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom could not have licked a sleeping Owen Grady because Ceratopsians were not on the list of dinosaurs that had any sort of tongue movement. If you're interested in seeing this stuff, it's in an open access journal, so you can check out all the cut open bird necks and jaws that you could desire. It's a little gross, to be honest. You can also just Google like geese mouth and be terrified. I kind of recommend against it because now I'm going to be even more afraid of geese. <laughs> Next, the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History recently did a CT scan of a Edmontosaurus skull for a new exhibition. It's going to be this interactive digital display in the renovated fossil hall, which will be opening next year, 2019. Huh. Yeah. The skull was found back in 1931 near Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta, Canada. And this new digital display is going to show how Edmontosaurus ate and two other dinosaurs. And it's based on 3D images made from the CD scan. The visitors, when you go there, you'll also be able to try and feed these dinosaurs. <laughs> How do you feed them? I don't know. Interactively, I guess. Oh, like virtually, perhaps? Probably. Interesting. Keep your fingers away from their beaks. <laughs> I wonder what you'll be feeding them. Yeah. I'm guessing conifers. Cycads. Maybe ferns. Yeah. Mm. So the popular stuff. I guess Edmontosaurus was around when some of the more interesting plants started popping up. We'll have to check it out when it opens. For sure. In Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, a man was recently arrested for hiding a protoceratops fossil and planning to sell it. Police gave the fossil to the Institute of Paleontology and Geology of the Mongolian Academy of Sciences, and I couldn't find too many other details, but that kind of goes along with how they're cracking down on any fossils that are coming out of the country. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that it'll be able to be studied by science, but it's kind of a bummer because a lot of those people don't have a lot of options for how to make money, so... Mm -hmm. It's a little bit complicated. Hopefully, if people are doing that kind of stuff on the black market, if a market emerges for scientific research, maybe people will be able to go in and start excavating and preparing stuff for museums or something. That would be really nice. Yeah, it would be. In happier news, a hadrosaur thigh bone from about 70 million years ago was found 
in Kagoshima Prefecture in Japan on Kamiko Shikijima Island. The thigh bone was at least 10 meters long, and it's the first dinosaur found on the island, though it's the 10th hadrosaur found in Japan. I think they, they probably meant that the thigh bone shows that the dinosaur was at least 10 meters long. If the thigh bone itself was 10 meters long, <laughs> Good catch. that would be a crazy huge dinosaur. In my mind, that's what I meant, so. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, the thigh bone shows they think this hadrosaur was 10 meters long. <laughs> That's pretty big. That's almost a Montosaurus level. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize so many hadrosaurs had been found in Japan, too. Mm, yeah, they have a lot of dinosaurs in Japan. It's surprising for such a relatively small country. Yeah. So starting July 15th, you can see the fossil on display at the city government's Kashima branch office in Shimoko Shikajima. Nice. I wonder how long it'll be on display for. Yeah, I didn't see anything about it. It's just one bone, so you could just stick it in one of those little display cases probably pretty easily. In Europe, scientists have found footprints of a carnivorous dinosaur from the Cretaceous about 139 million years ago. They think that this dinosaur was about 33 feet or 10 meters tall based on the 19.6 inch or 50 centimeter footprint found in northern Germany. And they found the footprint because of 3D scanning and photogrammetry. Hmm, pretty cool. That is a very early Cretaceous 139 million years ago. Yeah. Something else that's pretty cool is an interactive map that shows what Earth looked like at various periods in time. And you can take a look at the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, and at the dinosaur extinction, and then a bunch of the periods before that, but, you know, dinosaurs. So <laughs> you can enter a specific address, too, or at least a city, and it'll show you what your city looks like at a specific time. It kind of spins it around on the globe, and then you can see what the continents looked like. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I know they have to do a lot of guesswork because there's a lot of ages that aren't exposed because basically, since humans have only been around for, you know, a couple thousand years doing any kind of science, it's we don't have a record of the geology of most of the areas. It's basically just whatever's exposed right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in most places, that's just one age of rock. So you wouldn't know, say, in California, how much of the time it was underwater because we don't have enough rocks to figure that out. Oh, good point. But in some places, actually in the mountains in California, we do have a little more diversity of ages of rock. So you can learn a little bit more than in certain other places. And then I guess you just kind of guess based on sea level and mm -hmm. things like that. But those are awesome. I love those moving maps where you can see different time periods and what was underwater. A lot was underwater. Yeah, that's the main <laughs> takeaway. <laughs> like back in the day, really any other day, because we're basically in an ice age right now, you know, there's everything was underwater, <laughs> especially places like Florida, like the entire state underwater, almost all of through almost all of history. <laughs> Would it be anything that's sea level now? It's like maybe 10 feet is pretty, if you're 10 feet or below, you're underwater a lot of the time. Mm. And then if, you know, 20, 30 feet, you're still underwater a fair amount of the time. <laughs> well, in France, not really related, but moving on, there's a life-size 3D printed triceratops at the Gare d'Austerlitz railway station. The company Metropole printed the dinosaur in just two days, life-size. Wow. I know. The video is pretty cool. So this triceratops is meant to promote a new exhibition at the Musée National d'Histoire Naturelle in Paris. Also known as the Paris Natural History Museum. Yes, but I was trying. <laughs> anyway, you did very well. 
Well, maybe. <laughs> There's a video that shows people's reactions, and everyone seems impressed. There's a lot of people saying the same things, like "Wow, so realistic, impressive," and then children, of course, they keep trying to touch it. Did they make a full size? I mean, I know it's full size, but they didn't make the full dinosaur, right? It's just kind of、no, like the front quarter of it, or so. I think the tail might be sticking out too, because it it looks like it's popping out of something. Yeah. Yeah, so it kind of looks like a bust、yeah. plus the front legs. Sort But of the head alone and the frill and the beak and everything—that's、yeah, impressive. That's true. Then that is actually probably more like a third of the dinosaur. And the rest of it, who cares about the ceratopsian behind the frill? <laughs> Nobody ever looks at that. It does look pretty cool. They even painted it and stuff too.、Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, really well done. In Hempstead, Texas, there's one of the biggest collections of concrete dinosaurs.、Hmm. Yeah, you know, the longer we do this, the more I realize that there's a lot of people out there who make dinosaurs. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say like one of the only collections of concrete dinosaurs. Like, how many <laughs> collections of concrete dinosaurs are there? I have no idea, but. This one is Fraser's Ornamental and Architectural Concrete, owned by Billy Fraser. They have eight acres. Wow! I don't know if it's all dinosaurs, but they have this one area outside called Jurassic Island. There's a、mm. number of carnivores and herbivores. They got sauropods and ceratopsians and theropods, and that really is what attracts people. These dinosaurs they cost up to twelve thousand dollars, but they also sell small dinosaurs and dinosaur eggs for just twenty seven dollars and up. Are those life size? You think the big ones in the、they、island look life size or close to life size, juvenile size? Cool. I was thinking making a sauropod or something like that out of concrete would be really tricky because concrete doesn't do well with that sort of cantilever. They must have rebar or something going out to it. Also, how do you take it home? <laughs> yeah, and how much does it weigh? Like <laughs> a lot. Jeez, twelve thousand dollars doesn't seem that expensive. Yeah, but getting it home. Yeah, that probably costs you another twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Some lighter weight dinosaur art. There was a story about seven-year-old Sarah Gomez Lane who won the annual Doodle for Google contest with a drawing of dinosaurs, and she drew this drawing during a snowstorm and a power outage. And it's pretty cool. There's a T-Rex, a Triceratops, Parasaurolophus that's coming out of an egg, a sauropod, and a Stegosaurus. And because she won, she received thirty thousand dollars towards her college tuition. Nice. Yeah, and her school got a fifty thousand dollar award to spend on technology.、Ooh. Yeah, and she gets to work with the Doodle team to make her drawing interactive. It's、mm -hmm. eventually going to be featured on Google's homepage. That's cool. Yeah. So this is an annual thing. I wonder how long they've been doing it because I've never heard of it. Well, it's never had a dinosaur drawing. Yeah. So who winter, cares so. about those other ones?、Really? <laughs> <laughs> But good for her. Seven years old. Yeah. All right, we have a couple of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World bits to share. This one actually hadn't looked into this before, but I learned about the history behind the Jurassic Park logo, which is so so prominent and so easy to recognize. The challenge was that people knew about dinosaurs, but not necessarily about what the word Jurassic meant,、hmm. which is so hard to think about now.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> But for the film, also none of the film's dinosaurs were allowed to be in the marketing materials before the movie came out. Oh, interesting.、Mm -hmm. Chip Kid was the designer of the book cover, and he gave a TED talk about his process for creating the cover. And then they ended up using that cover for the film as well. And he visited the American Museum of Natural History. So going back a bit, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was the president of the American Museum of Natural History at the beginning of the 20th century, was 
the one who named T-Rex after Barnum Brown discovered the fossils, and in 1915, the museum unveiled their T-Rex mount, which greatly influenced how everyone saw T-Rex for the next 75 years, and it was mounted in the upright posture like a tripod with the tail dragging. After the unveiling, Osborne published the book The Origin and Evolution of Life, which included his T-Rex skeleton illustration. So when Chip Kidd visited the museum, he ended up buying The Origin and Evolution of Life from the gift shop, they had copies of it, and for Jurassic Park, both the publisher and Michael Crichton decided that they didn't want a live dinosaur on the cover. I guess they went through many, many iterations. Eventually, Chip Kid thought to use skeletons, though at first Michael Crichton was skeptical because the point of the book was that the dinosaurs were alive. So, mm. yeah. Chip Kid ended up using a photocopier and piece of tracing paper to use Osborne's T-Rex skeleton from the book he bought from the gift shop and turned it into more of a silhouette figure, the one that we all know and recognize. Mm-hmm. And Crichton loved it, and he faxed, and I'm censoring myself a little here, he said, wow, effing fantastic jacket, in huge letters. Mm. (laughs) For the movie, Spielberg decided that the logo would also be on all of the merchandise for the movie, which was uncommon at the time. Usually movie props only needed the bare minimum to look good on screen. But for this case, before the movie's release, they had licensing deals with over 80 companies, so they wanted something very easy to package up. And Universal's team came up with over 100 designs, and then eventually one of the film's art directors sent over a thumbnail sketch of the book cover art in a circle with the title underneath. And then they added a bit of jungle so that you could see that the dinosaur was really big. Then the tagline, an adventure 65 million years in the making, apparently started as a joke for, (laughs) the joke was 150 million years in the making, only one more year to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting because 65 million years is not Jurassic. 150 million years would be. Yeah. But then T-Rex, at the time they were saying was 65 million. Now we say 66 million years ago. Yeah, but still they're going by whatever the latest one. Mm -hmm. The font that they use for the logo is a bit controversial, which I had no idea. I guess I don't think about fonts that often. The font's called Newland, and there's debates about that font being racist. This Hmm. is according to a website called TIFF. TIFF, because that's a type of format for fonts. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because it's, quote, typographical shorthand for jungle or African, even, even though it was actually never intended for anything of the sort, end quote. The font was designed by Rudolf Koch in 1923, based on a calligraphic script that was used in Western Europe since the 12th century. And then in the early 1930s, the font was introduced to the U.S. and began to be used for these, quote unquote, primitive things, such as safari adventure paperbacks yeah so using newland and jurassic park made it popular and kind of solidified it as this tropical typeface and the logo was so popular and recognizable it has obviously stuck around yeah the thing that really stands out to me about that story is how jurassic park it's obviously copywritten the logo but it's mostly just a a copy of a sketch that was published in a book (laughs) in the early 1900s i guess maybe they say that it's transformative different enough yeah or maybe it's out of copyright by now because that's such an old book i'm not sure could be a combination of both yeah but then it seems like you could make something derivative from the same exact skeleton and it would look pretty similar yeah when you think about all the kind of parody logos Mm -hmm. for jurassic park i've never heard of them going after anybody for you know faking Jurassic Park mer- merchandise. I think they're pretty laissez-faire about it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if that's partly why or why they do that. 
It is interesting too with the logo. It's very identifiable as the American Museum of Natural History specimen because there's a part of the, I believe it's the roof of the mouth that kind of got shoved up in one of the fenestra at like the back of the head, kind of where the eye would be. Mm -hmm. And so there's this little bump that sticks out and it looks like when you look at the silhouette, oh, that's just the shape of the skull, but it's really an abnormality about that specific skull. Yeah. So it's, it's literally that American Museum of Natural History specimen. And then it's kind of funny because it's postured like it's moving. Right. But in life, the skull wouldn't look quite like that. I've never looked for it, but now maybe the next time I watch Jurassic Park, do you, the skeleton at the end of the scene or the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. do you think that it's supposed to look like the American Museum of Natural History skeleton? Does it have the weird thing on its skull? It's really hard to see. It's basically just a little bump at the back of one of the fenestra. Mm. So you have to see it pretty like carefully. Yeah, you could pause the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they give it to you in the right like side view to see it. They might. We should check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next time we watch it. Yeah. They definitely did it in a more modern pose than the logo. The logo is the old timey upright sort of pose. Well, because it's straight from Osborne's book. Yeah. From early 1900s. Whereas in the movie, they correctly depicted T-Rex as more horizontal. Right. Well, by the time the movie came out, I think they fixed it at the American Museum of Natural History too. Oh yeah. True. Yeah. I think they changed it in the 80s maybe. I thought it was early 90s. I can't remember now. Oh, okay. So maybe even when he was working on the cover for the book, it might have still been in the old style. It's hard to say. Oh, true, because he had to do it a few years before. Yeah. Well, the last bit of news is about Jurassic World. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So Mm. AirPlay and Universal, they've made this interactive audio story that you can enable on Amazon's Alexa. It's one of those skills. And it's called Jurassic World Revealed. It takes place during Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And in the game, you travel with podcaster Janet Best to Isla Nubar to report on the dinosaurs. There's six chapters. The first chapter is free, and then each subsequent chapter costs $4.99. Oof. But it's interactive. You choose what to do. So it's kind of a choose your own adventure thing. So, for example, how you avoid a carnivore, where in the park to go, things like that. And in the end, you can learn how your choices compare to other people who played the game. Hmm. It's pretty expensive. So then if you do all five chapters or six chapters, it's 25 bucks. Yeah, that's true. Wasn't... I didn't know that any of the Amazon Alexa skills were paid. I had the impression that they were all free. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know too much about the Alexa skill since we don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool that they're approaching stories this way. Yeah, that is cool. It's kind of like this other side to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, too, that you mm-hmm. don't get from the movie. I want to quickly give an update on Jurassic World Alive. I've been playing it since it came out, and it's still pretty fun. The main mechanic that's fun is the battle interface. Basically, you pick eight dinosaurs, you randomly get assigned four for the battle, like you're randomly drawing four cards from a deck. And really what it boils down to, when I'm playing it at least, is that if the Velociraptor is in my deck of four, then I'm probably going to win. If it isn't, I'm probably going to (laughs) lose because it's the fastest dinosaur in the game, and it's super important to be able to move more quickly than the other dinosaur. And then you can swap it out and put it back in later, and you get this little pounce move back right away, which is really powerful and weakens the other dinosaur. Anyway... The problem with the game, though, is it's way too pay-to-play heavy. It basically prompts every day that you should spend $50 on some new thing that's limited time only, which is incredibly annoying, and I assume if I was weaker-willed, I would be spending this money all the time, and that would be a big problem. 
And the reason that it's tempting is because it's essentially the only way to get certain types of dinosaurs. That's because you have to collect DNA from all these dinosaurs around town in order to evolve things. But the amount of DNA you need to collect increases exponentially. And for something like Indominus Rex, you have to collect a whole bunch of T-Rex DNA. And T-Rex is super rare to begin with. So really the way to get Indominus Rex is just pay them and then they'll give it to you. Same thing goes with Indoraptor, but even worse, because then you have to get Indorex DNA, which requires getting T-Rex DNA and some Raptor DNA or something, and then combining those and then combining that again. So it's like, it becomes very, very difficult to get certain things without paying for it. It's still pretty fun though. You just have to be okay with not having the best dinosaurs and going into battle and being like, oh, I wish I had Indominus Rex and realizing it's not worth the $50 to pay for it and be okay with losing. <laughs> and eventually, I suppose, I'll probably end up getting some of these dinosaurs if I keep playing that long. But if you're at all susceptible to these pay to play, like if you played Candy Crush and ended up spending a bunch of money on it, do not play this game. There's way too much pay to play and way too much functionality that's limited without paying to play. So stay away if you're easily a victim of these gamified freemium schemes. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Lephorothon, which was a request from Nathan S. via YouTube. So thanks. It was a hadrosauroid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Alabama in the U.S., and its name means crested nose. The type species is Lephorothon 
Aptopus, and the species name means uncommon or strange. It was the first dinosaur of its kind found in Alabama. It was discovered by Rainier Zangerl, Bill Turnbull, and Charles Barber while on a field museum expedition in 1946 in the Moorville Chalk Formation near Selma, Alabama. The holotype includes a fragmented skull, vertebrae, and parts of the forelimbs and hindlimbs, and the holotype was probably washed out to sea by a river and then sank and was buried. It's now in the Field Museum of Chicago's collections. It was named in 1960 by Juan Langston. That's a pretty long cap. That's like 14 years after it was discovered. It always takes a while to clean things up and even having the time to analyze thoroughly. I suppose. Lephorothone was herbivorous. It was estimated to be 14 feet 9 inches or 4.5 meters long. And since the holotype was found, it's also been found in the Black Creek Formation in North Carolina. Some scientists think that it might not be a valid genus, though. It might actually be a juvenile prosaurolophus, or as James Lamb suggested in 1998, it might be a basal iguanodont. Hmm. Seems like a range, but anyway. <laughs> Others such as Horner, Deschampel, and Forster in 2004 said that it was a basal hadrosaurine. And a 2010 study found that it was a basal member of Hadrosauroidea. It's pretty small, too, for a hadrosaur. Less than 15 feet long. Well, hadrosauroid. Oh, okay. But still. <laughs> well, like the name says, it's uncommon. Or strange. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I guess there's a chance that it might be a juvenile or something. Yeah. You didn't mention anything about the age, so I don't know if anybody's done that histology yet. Slice it open, see what the bone looks like. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't find anything about that. And real quickly, the fun fact is all about feces. So if you don't want to hear about it, you might want to just skip to the end. And our fun fact of the day comes from S.V. Pow, also known as Sauropod Vertebra Picture of the Week, which was co-created by Matt Waddle, who we interviewed a couple months back. And <laughs> we'll have a link in our show notes, too, if you want to see the full post that he wrote. But he was answering the question, how much poop did Argentinosaurus produce in a day? And he said, quote, I don't recall this question having been addressed in the literature. And I really enjoy that, just the prospect of a peer-reviewed journal saying about how much poop different dinosaurs created is just hilarious to me. It seems like an Ig Nobel kind of thing. So to figure out the answer to this question, they started with a cattle study that showed that cattle increased their intake of food at a 0.7 power as their size increases. In other words, a cow that's twice as big doesn't eat quite twice as much food as the smaller cow. Then they made probably the biggest assumption, which is that they probably eat a sort of similar diet and similar sort of digestion to elephants, and therefore they could scale up an elephant to sort of estimate what a really large elephant would eat, and we're just assuming that's what an Argentinosaurus is. And elephants eat about 150 kilograms per six tons of elephant, (laughs) just based on some mention of a large elephant eats about 150 kilograms of food a day. And it's probably a reasonable assumption that they were eating similar stuff. Grass had just barely evolved in time for Argentinosaurus and it wasn't widespread. And elephants eat food with relatively low nutrients, much like Argentinosaurus probably did. And then they just scaled up, like I said, (laughs) the elephant to the size of an Argentinosaurus to estimate how much it ate. Since Argentinosaurus in a rough ballpark is about 73 tons, that's kind of the middle of the range of recent studies, and an elephant is about 6 tons, you can divide it and find out that it's 12 times as big, so it's a 12 times 
<laughs> so it's just a massive elephant, 12 times the size of an elephant. And if you take 12 to the 0.7 power, you get 5.7 times as much food as an elephant. And that works out to be 850 kilograms of food per day, or almost a ton. Then another study relating this food intake to poop found that about half of food turns into poop. So that would be about 400 kilograms or about 900 pounds of poop a day. I'm using one significant figure here if you're wondering why it's not 425. So that's basically where the article ends. But then I had the question of how much volume it was, because that's what I'm thinking when I'm thinking how much poop. It's kind of like, what's the volume, not what's the weight of it, because I don't really have a good grasp of what poop weighs. So... <laughs> 400 kilograms, assuming it's mostly water, which poop usually is, equates to exactly 400 liters, and that would be about 100 gallons of poop, which is definitely a lot. That's about 14 cubic feet, and if you put that in a cone shape, it's 0.5 meters at the top, 2 meters wide, or 1.5 feet tall, and about 6 feet wide. I made it kind of a flat cone just by guesstimation, little bit different than the shape in Jurassic Park. Just to check, I went and I rewatched the part of Jurassic Park where they see the big sick dinosaur pile of poop, and this is about a quarter the size of the larger heap in that scene. There are actually two heaps that I hadn't noticed before. There's a smaller heap that Ellie reaches into, and then the bigger heap is in the background, and it's about the height of Ian Malcolm, so I just guessed it was about six feet, and then it ended up being about a quarter of the volume. And then there's a couple other extensions that I want to extract out of this. So to me, the obvious question is, how often do dinosaurs poop? Because if you waited four days at that point, you could make that enormous pile that was made in Jurassic Park. But this required me going into some bird forums where pet owners were talking about how much their birds pooped. And apparently small birds can poop about every 10 minutes. Although other species, especially larger ones, poop a little less often. And most birds apparently don't poop while they sleep. I guess they hold it in while they're roosting, and then in the morning they have a larger poop. Estimating about 12 hours of roosting, which is apparently average, would work out to about 70 poops a day if they're going every 10 minutes. And those would only be about 6 kilograms or 13 pounds. But it would have had a much larger morning poop if it does follow that roosting behavior, which I guess is up for interpretation because... Obviously, they might still poop at night since they're likely standing like wild elephants do at night, so it's hard to say exactly how it would work out. I also found a source that said elephants poop about 300 pounds a day, and if you take that same factor of 5.7, you end up with around the same number of almost a ton of poop a day. But it might be a high estimate since they may have retained water better, like how birds do, and so then their poop is a little bit lighter. Or it might be too low, depending on their metabolism and diet and a bunch of other factors that we likely will never know, <laughs> unless we find a copper light of like a huge, but then you wouldn't know how often it happened. So yeah, it's really hard to say. But I really enjoyed this rabbit hole because it's a question I've been wanting to answer for a long time. I don't know if anyone's ever specifically asked it. I think they've asked about that Jurassic Park scene and I didn't know where to start. So the SV Pow article was a really great starting point and then I could kind of continue on in my own rabbit hole direction. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't too much talk about poop. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for extra bonus content. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 
Good day.